Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. It's been said that uh, all art is political. George Orwell put it another way, all art is propaganda. The horror film can just be a fun romp through blood and guts, or it can be metaphorical, political, have a savage point of view. Because of its surrealistic nature, it's been a popular way to make a point, whether you notice it or not. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968 was seen as a political horror movie, if you felt to see it that way, about race and the creeping undead of uniform thought and fascism. In the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers and its three remakes, there's the same theme of humanity being taken over by conformity and emotional death. When we were making Masters of Horror a while back, one of the most popular and controversial episodes was Joe Dante's The Homecoming, which was a zombie story that was all about fighting back against President Bush and the war in Iraq. Sometimes the best way to represent controversial ideas is in a horror story. I'm not talking about a polemic or a broccoli movie that's good for you, but horror stories are meant to shake you up, to take you out of complacency, to be transgressive, provocative, to take you new places with new ideas and stretch the boundaries of reality. Stuart Gordon began his career in Chicago provoking the more mundane world around him, first in theater and then in film. And we'll be talking about his career of amazing, horrific provocation in just a moment. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. So I'd love to start talking about politics. Your career started in theater in college, really, um, and it was very political. Can you tell me a little bit about how you broke into that? Well, people say I can't get arrested, but I actually did. (laughs) (laughs) This was back when I was a student at the University of Wisconsin in 1968, and we did a production of Peter Pan that got me and my now wife uh, arrested for obscenity charges. Yeah, well, tell me how that came about and what the point was. I mean, you were you were a provocateur even then. Yeah, I was really doing some pretty crazy theater. And, uh, you know, I loved, um, you know, the uh, in, in 1968, the Democratic Convention took place in Chicago, and it was all the hippies and yippies showed up, and um, there was what they called a police riot where the police went crazy and beat the crap out of everybody. Under Mayor Daly. Yeah, and um, I was there and and so was my wife, Carolyn, and we both got tear gassed and I got arrested and thrown into a cell. And Anyway, the experience was very intense and um, it sort of occurred to me that I could do a production of Peter Pan about the convention that uh, uh, sort of a political cartoon with uh, Peter Pan and the Lost Boys being the hippies and the pirates and uh, Captain Hook being Mayor Daly and his police. And uh, you know, we did not change a, a word of James Barry's original really? script. Um, 
But when they're taking their, you know, flying off to Neverland and sprinkling the fairy dust on each other, and uh, in our version, it was LSD that they were dropping. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that sequence was, there was a dance sequence to sort of symbolize the flight to Neverland, which was... uh, uh, the music was Inagata De Vida. Ah, uh, and Butterfly. Yeah, and, and a psychedelic light show projected on the bodies of seven naked women, dancers. And, and that's what drew the obscenity charges? That's, that was it, yeah. Although I think they were pissed off about the political statement that we were making as well. Well, this theater company was called Screw Theater, right? Yeah, that's right. And then you you had even more success as a theater director doing with your own organic theater, is that right? Yeah, I started after um, I left the university, um, started the organic theater, Carolyn and I did, and uh, we moved it to Chicago and, you know, we did theater there for 15 years. Now, how did that theater career morph into filmmaking? Your first film was Reanimator, which is an iconic film that every genre fan knows and embraces and loves. And even that was an incredibly provocative film. But how did that transformation happen? Well, I was lucky enough to have some great actors in my theater company, you know, people like Joe Montaigne and uh, Dennis Franz, you know, both of whom became television stars and uh, doing cop shows because we did a play called Cops. And... They were seen doing that show. And you worked with David Mamet. Yeah, Mamet was, you know, we did the very first professional production of uh, Sexual Perversity in Chicago. and um, Which sounds like just the right thing for Stuart Gordon, right? <laughs> it was, yeah. Uh, so all of these people were, you know, going off to Hollywood, and I thought, why don't we do a movie? And the re- our original idea was to do Reanimator with the Organic Theater Company and even to shoot it in our theater in Chicago. But uh, the board of the theater, when we told them we were doing a horror film, they got horrified. <laughs> <laughs> Appropriately enough. Yeah. And, but for the wrong reasons. You know, they thought, you know, why, why aren't you doing an art film? And um, so I took a leave of absence and came out here to L.A., and that's where we shot Reanimator. And, but the language of theater and the language of cinema are often at odds with one another. So it's more than just words and performance. It's also about lighting and camera movement and, and composition and all those things. And how did you incorporate your theater knowledge into the knowledge of the language of movies? Well, I, I knew nothing about making a movie, really. I mean, I um, uh, had been an art student, so I could draw storyboards, and that was very helpful because you could sort of visualize what the movie was going to look like. But... Um, Things like screen direction, you know, real basic grammar of making movies was completely unknown to me. And luckily I had a very, very good director of photography, Mac Alberg, who kind of taught me the ropes. And he would say, Stuart, Stuart, you cannot put the camera there. <laughs> it won't cut. And I said, well, of course it'll cut. You just glue the pieces of film together, right? Isn't it? <laughs> so anyway, he, he gave me a, a crash course in filmmaking. In lenses and what the, what the eloquence of each lens would be and that sort of thing. Yeah, he was great. He was really helpful. And, and um, I was into the idea, and I still believe this, that cutting works against the drama of a movie often. And... Um, so I tried to do these really long takes of scenes and very complicated shots. And Mac, uh, you know, bless him, went along with me, and uh, you know he was incredibly helpful. Well, tell us a little of the background of Mac Alberg. Well, Mac Alberg uh, is a, you know he was a Swedish uh, director himself. 
he made a movie called I, a Woman, which had become a, a big kind of a cult film. I remember seeing it when I was a kid sneaking into it. It was a kind of a, you know, sexy... Adult movie theaters only movie. in those days. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. And, um, you know, Mac then came to the United States and was working as a director of photography for Charlie Band at Empire Pictures. But he had worked with Bergman and, and different people, he right? had, Yeah, he had. He, he uh, had been, you know, working with Sven Nyquist on, mm. on projects and things like that. And... Um, did a lot of documentaries, did, did just about everything. What did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Well, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a clown. Really? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had yearnings in your adult years? Well, I actually got to direct a circus, which was the, really? the closest I got. And I worked with a lot of clowns and discovered that becoming a clown is like becoming a brain surgeon. It's like the, you need the most training of any circus professional to become a clown. Well, speaking of clowning and, and comedy, comedy and horror seem to have a lot in common. They both go for a physical response, you know, a jump or a scream or a laugh or, or whatever. Tell me. Yeah, little... yeah. Well, you never find an audience that wants to laugh more than a horror movie audience because laughter is the antidote to fear. And uh, so they're always trying to laugh it off. And um, I always thought it was a good idea to give them something where they could laugh, where it's not going to be at the expense of the movie. Well, your sense of humor is pretty sardonic. Uh, and and the reanimator is, or just reanimator, is really ample evidence of that. Tell me a little bit about that balance. Well, one of the things I always do is uh, I always like to do a lot of research on both plays and, and um, films. And for reanimator, I actually went to various morgues, you know, and talked to pathologists and... Uh, found out that they were the most sardonic people I'd ever met. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do a job like that, you have to have a sense of humor. And um, that kind of informed the script for Reanimator. Well, horror, I think, by its very definition, is transgressive. And do you feel that way? I mean, you seem... A lot of filmmakers, as they mature during the process of their filmmaking careers seem to get a little more comfortable and a little less um, provocative. That's not the case with you. I think you are that 1968 scab picker that you were back then. <laughs> and tell me a little bit about your philosophy of how you approach horror and what its purpose is. Well, one of the things I learned early on was when I was doing a movie called From Beyond was never to censor yourself. You know, there was a sequence in that movie that I cut my, even before it was shown to the MPAA, because I said, they're never going to accept this. And it involved a girl who had a nail pounded through her tongue. And um, now every other girl's got a pierced tongue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it's like, what's the big problem? And uh, that was a very, very good lesson for me. But what do you like to do to an audience? I mean, I, I've seen you work and I've seen the glee with which you approach some of the darker sequences. But it, do you like to make them squirm? Well, I have to admit that I'm the biggest coward in the world. <laughs> I, I've, I'm known, my wife is always kidding me, because I will you know, get up and kind of run out of a movie theater if it gets to be too intense. And I've done that many, many times. I even did it once at a drive-in theater and just about crashed our car trying, <laughs> trying to get out. Um, so uh, I know what scares me, 
and that I find to be very helpful when making horror movies because I can know how to push those buttons. Well, talk about pushing those buttons and how, how you do it and, and what you're going for because you're not just telling a story. You're also creating fear. Well, I think the thing I've learned is that the greatest weapon you have is the mind of the audience member and that if you can make the audience member think that they're about to witness something really, really disturbing, that that's the best thing. So Often, dread is important. Yeah, a lot of, dread is exactly what it's, what it's all about. And setting that up, and oftentimes, um, you know, I think the, the, the best example I can give is um, Hitchcock, you know, in Psycho, killing off, and I hope this is not a spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 1960 is yeah, a little wide yeah, behind yeah. us. <laughs> uh, you know, killing Janet Lee in the shower was the most shocking sequence in the movie, and it comes 30 minutes into the film. And you're thinking to yourself while you're watching the scene, oh, my God, if this is what he's doing in 30 minutes, what's he going to be doing in an hour? And um, that you start to panic. And I think, you know, uh, the same thing worked with Ridley Scott's Alien, you know, with the, the chest burster um, coming in very early in the film. Uh, there's nothing else that's that shocking, as it turns out, but just the fact that you're anticipating that. And it really is all about anticipation. Well, and yet, you're not afraid to be explicit in your graphic horror. Um, is that an intentional thing? Is that one of your hallmarks, maybe? To me, it is, is that you're not afraid to show it, not just lead up to it and let us fill it in. But you're not afraid to let it bleed. No, sometimes you do have to show it. Um, but I think sometimes it's better not to show it. I think it's, you know, I, you know when we were doing Dagon... Um, the creature of this you know, monster, the sea monster, was something that we debated about whether we should show it at all, whether it's stronger or not to. You know, a movie like Rosemary's Baby, they never really show you the baby. No, just the eyes. You know, and even that, it's sort of a, not even the baby's eyes. It's, right. It's kind of a, the eyes of the devil or something. In and, a yeah. flash cut. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, I, I've talked to so many people who swear that they saw the baby in that movie. <laughs> you know, and it's like if you can get the audience's imagination engaged, you know, I think audiences love to be put to work and um, they'll imagine something far more disturbing than anything that you can, you know, create with special effects or makeup. When you were a kid, were you a fan of horror movies? I mean, did you set out to become a filmmaker who specialized in the horror genre or did that horror genre choose you? I was not allowed to see horror movies when I was a kid. And, um, you know, my parents, they were actually very wise about this because it turned out when I did sneak out and see one, I would be really upset and, and I would have nightmares for years. I, the first movie I saw, and it's funny, this sort of got past their radar, was um, Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, wow. With Boris Karloff playing, uh, you know... Uh, Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and yeah. Hyde, Yeah. And that gave me nightmares for two years. <laughs> <laughs> when Lou sits on the hypodermic. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was thinking about later was, I'm, you know, here I am doing reanimator with hypodermic needles. And it's kind of, you know, this was, the first, I think, the only Jekyll and Hyde that used hypos, you know, in, in the, you know, transformation. Right. And those themselves are pretty creepy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it is uh, the other movie I remember seeing when I was a kid. We snuck, my brother and I snuck out to see The Tingler. Mm -hmm. and wandered in 
in the middle of the movie and sat down in those seats that you fun, were fun. you had one of the buzz yeah, seats. I did. Oh wow! And it started buzzing, and I was like out of that theater so <laughs> fast. And my brother still kids me about it because I left him behind, and he's you know my little brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of people don't know that when that movie came out in like 1960 or whatever it was, um, uh, William Castle, the director, was. Uh, kind of the P.T. Barnum of, of movies in those days, and there was always some sort of gimmick. And so every third or fourth seat in some of the key theaters it played in had like the hand buzzer that you'd get a little vibratory shock uh, yeah. whenever the tingler appeared. Yeah, exactly. The seat would start rumbling. And, yeah. um, you know, it usually, it was funny, they were, I think it was a button in the projection booth, and this, this projectionist must have really just loved it. Hitting that button. <laughs> but I walked in in the scene that was the scariest scene in the whole movie. And again, it was the same thing about anticipation. I thought, if this is, you know, what the, is the whole movie going to be like this? As it turns out, it was, you know, it wasn't until years later that I saw the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw it with Quentin Tarantino. Oh, <laughs> perfect movie and, date. Uh, yeah, and he sat in front of me and I vibrated his seat. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, you're doing with your films what that projectionist was doing with that buzzer. Yeah, in a sense. And, um, you know, I guess knowing what scares you is important. And one of the things I discovered, you know, working with you and the other masters of horror was so many of them were like me, that they were, when they were kids, they were scared to death of horror movies. Well, I think they're probably among the most sensitive people. If there's a car crash, they're looking away, not <laughs> hovering over it. If there's blood. They're the first ones to pass out. Bunch of pussies. Yeah, well, it's true. I was uh, at a film festival, and um, they were showing Reservoir Dogs, and the film broke right at the moment when Michael Madsen's about to you know, take out his razor and slice off the guy's ear. And... Um, went to the bathroom and sta- at the next urinal is Wes Craven. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> he and, and, and he says, I'm not going back in there. <laughs> and I couldn't resist saying, Wes, it's only a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you have to repeat it over and over. <laughs> yeah. And he said, I don't care. It's too real. I'm not going back in there. And well, he took off. When did you decide that you wanted to make movies, that you wanted that to be your life? Well, I made movies. I started making movies when I was a teenager. You know, I had a, my father... I had an old eight millimeter camera, and I would use that with my friends, and we we shot kind of, I mean, it was sort of like Benny Hill kinds of stuff. I mean, not horror movies. So it's comedy. Yeah, a lot of comedy. That was the thing that first appealed to you when you decided that you wanted to make movies. Though, was it a commercial choice? Uh, horror movies are a good stepping stone to get into filmmaking, or you really that was your passion project? Well, I do. I, I you know, the things that scare you, you kind of love somehow. It's weird. The, th- the more you're scared by something, the more you love it. It's a really a very bizarre relationship. And I always think it's so funny that the people who scare you the most, you know, the horror icons, uh, you, you, you love them for some really weird reason. Well, we've had these Masters of Horror dinners where we've had as much as 35 different horror filmmakers there, and they're the sweetest bunch of pussies you can ever <laughs> Yeah, it's true. It's true. But, um, no, I think it was a choice. I was, you know, I was told that this was at the beginning of all of the, you know, home video, you know, uh, VCRs and so forth. And uh, horror was what was selling. And they said, you know, somebody said to me, look, if you make a horror movie, you, no matter how badly it turns out, it'll make its money back. 
And that turned out to be true. And yet you made a really good movie that has become a classic among several things you made, like From Beyond and Dolls and other things. But what a lot of people don't realize is you were originally attached to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids for a complete about-face. So tell me about that experience and what, uh, how you ended up not directing it. Well, it was... Um, Brian Usna, the producer of Reanimator, and I were... You know, he, he his kids had been, you know, shown a, a film at their school. I think it was, it was something like the Natty Gan, I think was the name. It was, oh, a, it, was yeah. a, it was a Disney film. And I think the director was... He had a kid in Brian's, the same class that Brian's kid was in. And Brian was upset that they would never show any of our films there. And we said, well, why don't we come up with an idea that we could be, could be a family film? And that was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, although at the time we called it Teeny Weenies. Oh, uh, yeah, I remember. And, and um, you know, Disney, you know, bought into it. And, and I remember being told by Disney, they said, we want this to be more like the absent-minded professor and less like the fly. <laughs> People, but it is a horror movie. I mean, that's the thing about it. It's not that different than the other films. It's mad scientist. Yeah. You know, it's an experiment that goes horribly wrong. But you really do like to provoke, it seems. I, when we were making the Black Cat episode of Masters of Horror and we had a dead cat in it, and this is, again, a tribute to your sense of humor and your talent as an actor, because to this day, I don't know if you were serious or not, when we're talking about having a black cat, just get a dead cat and we'll just pull its eye out. <laughs> now, I, to this day, don't know if you were serious, but as a... I was uh, serious. Uh, I, I I, so you don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> I, um, we had a real dead cat in Reanimator. Yeah. You know, there's a sequence where they open up the refrigerator and there it is. And we got it from a veterinarian, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, we did Sleepwalkers. We had lots of cats that had already been dead that are in that opening sequence there. Yeah. And it's, as a card-carrying vegan. <laughs> as long as you're not harming the animal, as long as right. you're not the one that's cutting the eye out of a, a live cat, I think it's okay. Um, but, uh, you know, I think... You, I, I, I think sometimes I, I got into a thing with a makeup guy once. I said, why don't you ever use meat mm -hmm. <laughs> instead of latex? <laughs> when when it's much more convincing. Yeah, when you're putting it on these people, it would, be, it would really be pretty amazing. Well, you've done a lot of adaptation work from literary work or, or uh, theatrical stuff, but you've done work that was based from David Mamet, H.P. Lovecraft, which you're most famous for, for so many H.P. Lovecraft adaptations, Poe. And Ray Bradbury, the wonderful ice cream student. Yeah. So tell me, if that is so far removed from what we think of as a student, uh, Stuart Gordon film. Tell me how that came about, because Bradbury was the reason I became a writer. When I was 12, oh, yeah. I read every book he'd ever written. Well, me too. I mean, he was, and getting to meet him was one of the joys of my life. And, and uh, we got to be friends. And we had done one, a, a play at the Organic Theater called The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit which had been very successful for us. And Bradbury came and saw it mm. and um, loved it. And one day after I moved out to L.A., I ran into him on the street and he said, why don't we make a movie of Ice Cream Suit? And so we set up a meeting to talk to Disney about it. You know, we, we, this was after I'd done Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And um, Bradbury shows up wearing a white suit. <laughs> which is which is what the what the you know the story is about mm -hmm. five Mexican Americans who share this white suit and makes their dreams come true. So he keeps walking and wearing a white suit, and I'm going, boy, this is amazing. We can't lose. And the executive, you know, 
it was this grouchy guy and and um bradbury goes it's really a pleasure to be here you know last time i was here i had lunch with walt and the guy goes walt's dead oh nice <laughs> yeah that's the op- this is like the opening you know two minute of the of the meeting welcome yeah, yeah. and uh so bradbury's trying to re- you know, kind of keep it light and he's saying you know congratulations on all the animated films you know this is when the little mermaid had come out and all and uh the guy goes you know um he says you don't have to lie to me what he says the only person you have to lie to is your mother is what he said and bradbury without skipping a beat goes well sometimes you just feel like you're in a room full of mothers (laughs) (laughs) perfect end of meeting (laughs) and uh you know i call they passed and i called up ray and said you know you know they don't want to do it and he goes i can't believe it ray he says roy disney always loved the play I said, Roy, the Roy Disney, you know, who was, you know, uh, Walt's brother. Well, Walt, it's Walt's uh, nephew. Oh, the nephew. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. Roy. And Roy was the one who brought Michael Eisner to Disney and sort of saved the company when it was really in trouble. Um, so the next thing I know, we're meeting with Roy Disney, and he says, let's do it. And uh, we did it as a movie for a direct to video movie. And uh, it was the most fun I ever had making a film. It was, really? Yeah, it was just great. You know, we had singing and dancing. and I mean, it was so light and fun. Shot it in Boyle Heights. How it, great. It was wonderful. And it's a great movie and one that most people don't know about. But what about the process of of making something that you're proud of that nobody sees? Yeah, that's the story of my life, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that's, you know, as a filmmaker, I've been very lucky in that I've had a lot of control of my films. But the thing you never have any control over is how it's released. And I've had so many movies where they've just made these really kind of dumb calls uh did a movie called fortress mm-hmm. and the and the guys who released it in the united states didn't want to let anyone know it was about a prison <laughs> <laughs> they might have thought of changing the title <laughs> I, yeah well it was it, it, it the thing that was so odd was that the movie had already been shown all over the world and it had been a huge hit in just a, in every other country but the united states but Stallone had come out with this movie called Lockup that had not done very well. Mm. And so, you know, the way these guys think is, well, that means that audiences don't want prison movies. Right. You know, they get, they make these generalizations, you know, for years and years when I first moved out here, nobody believed that, uh, you know, science fiction could make any money. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then Lucas does Star Wars. Welcome to 1977 (laughs) and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. And then they used to believe that nobody was interested in anything that took place in the past. And then Jim Cameron did Titanic. Mm. You know, it's like all it takes is one movie to just change everything. And usually it's the original movie that changes course of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than all the copies. Well, working within, you've mostly worked in independent film throughout most of your career. Do you find that you prefer that and that you're able to have more creative control? Well, you certainly do have more control in a you know, smaller project. The, you know, the bigger the film, the bigger the budget, the more people are involved. If it's a studio film, you know, it's like a committee. And um, it's a lot harder to get things done the way you want them to. Well, let's talk about the creation of the projects. I mean, you as a writer, you usually co-write with Dennis Paoli. Do you ever write on your own? No, I never have written on my own. It's uh, I always work with a, a writing partner. You know, for the last couple of films, it was a it's a gentleman named John Streisick. You know, we did a movie called Stuck uh, right. together, and um, 
with uh, Patrick, uh, with uh, Mina Savari oh, yeah, and, and, and Stephen Ray. And yeah, it was a, a great little thriller. Yeah, and it was you know it's, it was been fun working with him. And um, I mean, to me, it's always more fun writing, as you know, is a very lonely thing. It it's you and the piece of paper. And, and that can be a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it can. But I like having somebody to sort of bounce ideas off of. And with somebody like Dennis, it's a, you know he's always topping, you know, coming up with a better idea than taking my idea and, and making it into a, a great idea. Well, let's talk a little bit about the process. Most of the times, do you create your own projects, or, or uh, are you a director for hire? Um, what, what has been the well, your preferred mode, but also what has, how has it happened to you? Well, it's been a little bit of both. Most of the time, I think it's projects that I create, but um, there have been times when, uh, you know, I've taken something that has been given to me, and, you know, Fortress was a project like that, where I had read the script and wasn't particularly interested in even meeting about it, and they, I, my agent said, you've really got to meet with them. And uh, and I said, but I'm not crazy about the script. And he said, well, he said, well, don't tell them that. Mm-hmm. So first question, what do you think of the script? <laughs> and I said, I well, loved uh, it. I said, and so I just finally said, well, I think it needs some work. And they go, we know. What would you What would you do? And suddenly the door opened up on that project that they were, you know, open to changing it. And um, then I really, you know, I had fun with it uh, and was able to, you know, get involved with the rewrite and so forth. When you made Reanimator, uh, the only way to do the effects that were done were practical. And it's one of the reasons the movie is so great. You've also worked with CG, uh, with digital effects and the like. Let's talk a little bit about the difference in the process between working with something that you can hold in your hand and working with something that you imagine and visualize. Well, I kind of think, you know, that CG should be the last resort. You know, that if you can, can't can figure out any other way to do it, that it should be CG. Because I'm so tired of these movies that are all CG from beginning to end. And they seem very sort of lazy to me. And they also um, kind of seem very removed. I don't think you get this immediacy that you do with uh, other kinds of effects. Well, it has been said that all art is political. And you have a background in political theater and I think there are themes that show up in your films that feel very political to me and we're in a very restive time right now yeah. in, in our world of politics and film and and what what do you see as as your philosophical approach to, to filmmaking well one of the things that's interesting to me is it always seems that the best time for horror movies is when you have a repressive government <laughs> You know, I mean, I remember, you know, there were, everyone's all about the 80s now. And I think the reason the 80s were so good for horror was because of Ronald Reagan. Yeah. You know, and his, and his you know, uh, government that, you know, was, I mean, we all felt kind of, a, you know, f- you know, frustrated. I mean, there are those now that think Reagan is like the greatest president we ever had, but not so. I mean, this is, you know, he was the first sort of absentee president, I think. Um and then, uh, you know, under Bush, um, you know, the George W., we got torture porn. You know, that mm-hmm. was sort of, you know, a response to what he was doing at Guantanamo. Well, even uh, Vietnam inspired Romero's Night of the Living Dead and, and Toby's uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's true, yeah. 
So, I mean, I think maybe one of the good things that could come out of the current political situation is that maybe we'll see some great horror movies. Does it inspire you? It does. It does. I mean, I, you know, I think everyone is scared. And it was interesting to me that after 9-11, everyone expected that what people would want would be escapism. But instead, it was one of the it was horror movies that really, you know, everyone went to see. Um, there was so much fear in the air that people needed a way to get it out of their systems. And I think that's what one of the things that horror can accomplish. How do you feel that you've changed as a filmmaker since starting with Reanimator? Is there an approach or is there a philosophy or is even just practically? How do you approach a film today that you might be a, a metamorphosis from your beginnings? Well, I think, you know, I, I think the thing I've learned is simple is better than, you know, the, the more simple something is, the better it is. And that you don't need much. And oftentimes all you have to do is just, if you've got a, you know, I always say the, a good actor is the best special effect. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is just point the camera at that person and you don't have to do anything more than that. You know, there are some directors who are very involved in the technical side of things, and I'm not one of them. I, I, I really, you know, I'm not going to develop a new way of, you know, a, a new piece of equipment or something like that. Well, what's interesting is that in recent years, you've gone back to theater. You know, you did the Nevermore, the, the one-man show with Jeffrey Combs, the star of Reanimator, playing Edgar Allan Poe. You've done Reanimator the musical. I mean, uh, tell me about that process. Yeah, well, you know, right now I'm about to do um, a production of uh, Kurt Vonnegut's book, The Sirens of Titan, as a play. Really? Yeah, and uh, it's funny because we did it at the Organic Theater 40 years ago. Amazing. And uh, Ben Rock, who was at the Sacred Fools, was talking to me about it and asked me if I had a copy of the script and I looked and did not and he went to the Chicago Public Library it turned out they had a copy of it there of our, our original script and wow and he got it and you're doing the same script we're doing the same script although I did a little more work on it which mm -hmm. was kind of fun to revisit something 40 years later and once again from a literary source yeah and I actually got to work with Vonnegut when we did really? it originally which was wonderful I mean I I was so lucky I got to work with Rule Dahl also. Oh, my God. You know, I met him and his wife at the time, Patricia Neal. Well, people know about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but to me, Kiss Kiss was a collection <laughs> yeah. of short stories that just helped mold my twisted youth. Well, well yeah, he, people don't know that he wrote all of these things for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. You know, based on the his jar. Story, his story, or the jar is. is oh, Bra that's Bradbury. Bradbury. Yeah, that's Bradbury. But the one that is the famous. The Unlocked Dahl, Window? It was, I think it's called Lamb to the Slaughter. Yes. And it's yes. about a woman who kills her husband with a frozen leg of a lamb and then cooks it and serves it to the police. I think that was based on a story that was in either Kiss Kiss or Someone Like You. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a famous rural doll story. But, you know, before he did children's books, he was really the expert at these very sort of twisted suspense stories. Which had a great sense of humor, a, a dark sense of humor that at that time in particular was quite unexpected. Yeah, no, they were wonderful. And, and um, we did a, one of his books called um, Switch Bitch. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which were all these sort of sexy stories. Right. And um, and he came and saw it, and it was really fantastic to, to meet him. Roald Dahl, Ray Bradbury, Kurt Vonnegut. I know. I, mean, I was so lucky. I got to work with, with Mary Renault also, um, you know, who writes uh, all those books about ancient Greece. Um, wow. 
you know, it's it's been you know working on plays has been opened so many doors for me. I didn't realize we have one other thing in common. Um, both of us worked with Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Uh, tell me, I don't think I've seen Daughter of Darkness. That was a television movie, right? It was, and that was one of the ones that I did not write. You know, um, you were a director for hire. Yeah, I was. I was. I was. You know. Um, Looking for work, and um, the, guy, the guy who had been casting my movies was working on this and sent the script to me, and I liked it. And uh, so went off to Hungary to, to direct this. Oh, my. And, um, and they got Tony Perkins. And, and um, I remember them telling me, oh, you better be careful with him because he's, you know, he directs himself, and he's not, he does not suffer fools gently. So I was very nervous and uh, it turned out we really hit it off. And yeah, you had a great experience, right? I did. And he was, you know, um, it was, it was great fun working with him. We got to be friends. Yeah. It was an interesting experience for me working on Psycho 4 because here he'd played Norman Bates in three movies. He'd r- directed Psycho 3 and wanted to direct Psycho 4 and they wouldn't let him. So, uh, I had a, a very interesting relationship with him, from really great to complicated. I mean, I could see that that's possible with him, but he um, he was always wonderful. And one of the things that happened when we were working on this was that I played him the um, Talking Head song, uh, "Psycho Killer." Oh, perfect! <laughs> he hadn't heard it. <laughs> he had before. never heard it, and oh. I and I said, "I think they wrote this about you." <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And. Um, what happened was we were shooting some s- sequence and I was way behind and it didn't, and the producers were going crazy and said, we're going to shut this down at midnight. doesn't matter how far you've gotten with the scene. It's going to, we're just going to move on. So, I, you know, Tony comes on the set and, and he can see I'm, that I'm really stressed out and he goes, what's wrong? And I explained it all to him and he said, tell you what you do. When it gets to midnight, start singing Psycho Killer. <laughs> <laughs> and don't stop. Just keep working. <laughs> and so we got to midnight, and the producers go, "All right, everybody, it's a wrap." And I, I start singing "Psycho Killer," and and uh, Tony says, "So what's your next setup?" <laughs> and I tell him, and we just keep going, and we went, we, we worked for another like two or three hours to finish <laughs> finish the scene. So what do you what, what have you watched recently that has excited you? Gosh, you know, there's been a lot of really good movies coming out. You know, movies, horror movies now, it's an international thing. That's what I really like. I saw this great Austrian movie called... um, Good Night Mommy. Good Night Mommy, yeah, which I thought was just great. And I got to meet the filmmakers. And um, and it was a a woman and her her, uh, nephew. Um, It was, they're terrific. Uh, And I really loved The Witch, which Mm. which I thought was... uh, so atmospheric and and you know got to meet the director on that one as well and he like me likes to do a lot of research and it really shows in that film what is your process when you when you take something on do you research all of the veracity of it and and and, and take it on in a literary sense and and then the next steps do you do you storyboard do you shot list do you plan things too much or do you like to be there fresh on a set and see what happens well i one of the things that i always do is rehearse which which is a rare thing in hollywood as it turns out uh i can't imagine not rehearsing you know i always find a a week where we can just work with the actors and the actors always seem to really like it the only actor who didn't was dennis hopper Really? Because he was really uh, believing in sort of spontaneity and did not want, thought that rehearsal got in the way of that, which 
I don't agree with. Do you think that comes from your, your training in theater? Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the thing about acting is that if you can do theater, you can do anything. I think theater is the hardest of, of all of the disciplines. And uh, m- most of the really great movie actors have come out of the theater. If you weren't making movies, what would you be doing? God, that's a good question. I always used to say I would like to be a shoe salesman. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I don't see you with the petite feet. Yeah. I don't know. It just, you know, it always seemed like a good job that you're sitting at the, <laughs> the feet of a beautiful woman putting, putting shoes on her. I don't know. So you didn't go to school to train for anything before you started getting involved in theater? I, I did, actually. I, when I was in high school, I majored in commercial art, and I thought I was going to be a commercial artist. And I, when I got out of high school, I worked at a commercial art studio for six months and hated it. Really? You know, I, was, um, I met a guy who his only job was to paint the little bubbles on the sides of Coca-Cola bottles. Oh, my God. You know, to make it look frosty. Well, what's the dream project? Is there a project you have or that you dream about that if you got this shot, this is the thing I want to make that's all mine? Wow. Well, there, there are several of them, but the one that I, that I always, the one that I'm after from time to time is to do, a, we did it as a play at the Organic, um, and it was Mary Renault's book, The King Must Die which is the story of Theseus and the Minotaur. And it's just fantastic. It's, it's, she writes it, a version of it, as the way it really could have happened. That does not, it's not, you know, there's no supernatural things in it, um, but it's sort of like this could be the basis of the legend. And mm-hmm. um, it's an absolutely great book. Um, and I think it could even be, you know, she wrote a sequel to it, and you could do both of them sort of uh, be like Godfather 1 and 2. Wow. Well, of the movies that you've made, you've, they, many of them have been embraced and are iconic and are classic and the like. What are the ones that you wish more people had seen, the ones that are really close to your heart that maybe passed people by? Well, we mentioned Ice Cream Suit. That's, that mm-hmm. one is really hard to find, um, and it's seldom seen by anyone. Um, you know, one that's sort of disappearing is The Pit and the Pendulum, mm-hmm. which was really fun to do, you know, getting to do something set in... You know, uh, I mean, it's set in, you know, 1492. Um, that was really a trip. Based on a three-page post story, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What people don't remember about the Edgar Allan Poe stories is that they were just a handful of pages, each of them, the short stories. Well, Poe believed that you a short story had to be read in one sitting. He did not think, that, you know, the idea that you, you know, are going to come back and continue was not part of the trip. It's like... You have to get the full effect, you know, in reading something in about 20 minutes. Well, you're probably best known for the H.P. Lovecraft work, that you, adaptations that you've done. Have you also studied his life as well as his work? Yeah, and his life is pretty crazy, too. You know, um, I've been actually thinking about doing something about his, his love life. I was oh, thinking of calling it Lovecraft in Love. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. We got a couple of questions from our listening audience who are prepared to uh, hear your answers. All right. Derek asks, as a writer, representatives and executives always tell me to stay away from horror comedy because it doesn't make money. Yet I argue there are so many beloved classics like Reanimator. How can this be? What do you think these movies... Why do you think these movies tend to fail or connect at the box office, uh, yet find life as a cult classic later on? 
Horror comedy is an interesting concept. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, there are some that are really, I think, pretty successful. In mm -hmm. A movie like Shaun of the Dead, I think, oh, that, you know, has done pretty well, you know. I don't think of Reanimator as a horror comedy. I think there's humor in it, but it's certainly not a comedy. Yeah, well, I think that, like I said, no one wants to laugh more than a horror movie audience, mm -hmm. and it's always a good idea to give them something. And I... I mean, I think there are things, you know, like I, uh, one of the best examples is um, Jaws, you know, that we the line, we need a bigger boat after he was just <laughs> scared the crap out of the audience with that shark's head rising out of the water. You know, audiences need laughter to get that release. I to think. diffuse them. I know Hitch Hitchcock was famous for using laughs to set you up and make you feel comfortable and then hit you with the sledgehammer. Exactly. So I think the you know good movies should have both. You know there should be humor and horror together. Ian asks, as a child, I was terrified by the VHS cover art for Dolls, but finally was brave enough to see it last year at a local theater in L.A. I fell in love with it immediately, and have been sharing it with friends. Thirty years later, what are your thoughts on the film now? Mainly its themes. Do you feel like there is something that we need now more than ever? I had heard. There were talks for a sequel at some point, and can you elaborate on uh, if there's going to be a follow-up? <laughs> it would be great. To <laughs> a sequel to Dolls sequel. from 30 years ago. Exactly. I mean, stranger things have happened, but, you know, um, I, I, at the time I did Dolls, I had just read a book called uh, The Uses of Enchantment by Bruno Bettelheim, and it was about fairy tales and how, how fairy tales uh, should not be cleaned up, you know, they should not be Disney-fied, mm. that, they, that the scariness of of fairy tales is important in teaching a child that the world is can be a scary place but that if you are brave and good you can succeed and that you know i think is a great message so when i got the opportunity to do dolls uh i thought well, maybe i could try some of these theories and see if they really work and they did it was yeah it was really fun and and it was a uh, it turned out to be one of the most difficult movies i've ever made Really? In yeah. what respect? Well, we had a hundred dolls that come to life. <laughs> and it's, you know... On a Charlie Band budget? Uh, yeah, and it, and it was like, you know, we we started out using puppets and marionettes and things, and that wasn't going to quite make it. And we then we had mechanical dolls built. We had a, we shot it in Italy, and we had a guy who was sort of like Geppetto in yeah. Pinocchio who built these mechanical dolls that were amazing. And... We still needed more work, and we got finally ended up getting Dave Allen to do stop-motion animation for us. And it ended up taking a year of post-production to complete it. Well, thanks for sharing your experiences and things with us uh, on Postmortem, and look forward to the next time. Well, and thanks for listening. Well, thanks for uh, inviting me. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. 
Each bottle of Quest Ice Coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest Ice Coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.